Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm Georgie. And I'm Jess. And we are the Female Athlete Podcast. We're here because we believe the conversation around the female body and how it works needs to be opened up. Discussing topics from puberty to menopause and everything in between, the Female Athlete Podcast aims to inspire confidence and empower through education and conversation. There's no shame or awkwardness here, just honest and open conversations about female health-related topics. In our eyes, anyone who uses their body to move or exercise is an athlete. So join us as we open up the conversation. We'd like to thank our title sponsor for Series 2, Pretty Athletic. Pretty Athletic is a unique skincare brand for active women. Whether you're a runner looking for the best moisturiser, an amazing gel cleanser for pre- and post-workouts, or a soothing tonic to help combat gym skin, Pretty Athletic are the go-to brand whatever your skincare concerns and needs. And did we mention it's also 95% natural, vegan, and packed with scientifically proven actives. So I've actually used Pretty Athletic products for some time now, and I got in touch with them, and they were really, really helpful because I'm quite a sweaty runner, and um, I was getting quite a lot of dry skin, particularly around my chin um, and sort of my lower cheeks, and I, I didn't really want that. Um, and obviously kept covering it up with makeup and things, that obviously doesn't help. So. I found that the actual sweat proof hydration gel um, before and after all of my runs and workouts, gym things, um, has made such a big difference and really cleared up all the dryness. Um, and I actually really like the shower gel, it's a shower scrub I think it is. And as I said, I'm a particularly sweaty person, particularly after some gym sessions, so that really makes me feel a lot cleaner and cleansing everything and sort of ready for the next workout. Head to www prettyathletic.com to view the amazing range of products available and use discount code FEMALEATHLETEPOD for 20% off. Now it's an area that we didn't touch on at all last season and we want to dedicate an episode to it today. It's injury. Now we know from the elite to the recreational athlete, injuries can be a normal part of life. On today's episode we're going to talk about best practice when it comes to injury prevention the types of injuries commonly found in female athletes, and how factors such as the menstrual cycle may impact upon injury risk. We also speak heavily about ACL injuries in football and how education and menstrual tracking can be key tools in injury prevention. Before we head to the interview, this episode is sponsored by Limitless Bra. The Limitless Bra was designed for growing bodies to give girls the support, comfort and confidence to enjoy being active. The only sports bra aimed at teenagers, it offers up to four inches of adjustment using a patented T-system and is comfortable and discreet. Please see LimitlessBra.com for more information. Today we are very excited to have Dr. Nicole Serdica on our podcast. Nicole is a physical therapist, a performance coach and a former soccer player herself. Um, Nicole is based in LA and has an enormous passion herself for soccer um, and other sports in general. Um, We're going to hear way more about Nicole and Nicole's journey, but just a brief bit of an overview. Um, Nicole specifically advocates for soccer or football for those in the UK um, and is all about equal or creating an equal playing field, equal understanding um, between both genders. Um, And she really believes that soccer and football should be accessible to everyone, girls, women, people who are tall, people who are small, young and old. 
Nicole has extensive experience of working with a whole range of athletes and has a great web page for anyone out there who wants to read more or um, actually go and see her in person. Um, she's also very passionate about the translation of research to practice, which is clearly something we feel very passionate about on our podcast. Um, Nicole has extensive experience of working with female athletes, particularly on their return to play post-injury. Um, so anyway, welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. So can you give us a bit of a, a, a background as to how you became a physical therapist and a performance coach and, and what kind of kept, kept you in the game of soccer after you were a player? Yeah, so I, it started off basically when I I played college soccer and then after college or in, towards the end of college, it was kind of like, I'm not going to be an athlete for much longer. Like, what what do I do and who am I outside of soccer? And I kind of realized quickly that, like, I didn't necessarily want to move forward without soccer. Like, I wasn't ready to move on from soccer. And I felt like it was just such a strong part of me that it was hard for me to um, to take it away from my self-identity. So I knew whatever I was going to do had to involve soccer at, at some level. So then when I graduated PT school, I coached soccer all through my time in PT school. And when I left, um, you know, just worked in a standard outpatient clinic. And we, my husband and I have moved a couple of times across the country. So in every place that I've worked, it's just kind of been like kind of the same old, same old. And I was kind of getting burnt out and sick of, um, you know, not really seeing the research translated into clinical practice, people still doing things that were really outdated. Um, and so that's when I decided to venture out on my own. And I did that two and a half years ago and have just been uh, working for myself. And I wanted my, my primary thing is always trying to take the research and show people how we can apply it, because what's the point of research if we don't actually use it? So um, that's kind of been my mission, and whether I do that through my blogs, through teaching courses, or just through how I practice in general, um, you know, I, that's how I've tried to build my career. So on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about the differences between men and women and how anatomically, physically, physiologically, psychologically, there really are fundamental differences. And Obviously, we know that historically there has been this big lack of research and lack of understanding um, in females specifically and female athletes too, obviously, um, largely because of potential or concern over potential harm, harming like female reproductive organs when there wasn't enough research to really understand um, what, I guess, what invasive or non-invasive research could do to the female body. Um and then more latterly, the crazy um, changes in hormones that do occur throughout the female menstrual cycle have made doing research really challenging. Um, now we know that things are changing and methodology is um, becoming more and more stringent to really help us gain a better understanding of this, but clearly there is so much more to do. Um, from your side, from a really like applied like perspective, what are the key differences in injuries that you tend to see, if there are any at all altogether. So in men, the most common injuries are hamstring strains, adductor injuries, um, and then MCL injuries and ankle sprains. In women, there's a little bit of a, a change in that there's not quite as many adductor um, or groin injuries in women footballers. Um, 
there are more ACL injuries in female footballers, but mostly a lot, there's more bone injuries um, compared to male footballers. So a lot of that is anecdotal. A lot of, like anecdotally, I could tell you that I've seen way more female soccer players with quad and hip flexor injuries as opposed to groin adductor injuries. Um, but we don't have kind of the definitive data on that yet to be determined really, but that's kind of the trends we see. And I guess like it, in a way you can understand why that might be so because of the changes in posterior tilt potentially partly and again you'll know way more about this than me but um yeah it's so frustrating isn't it because you just especially when you can see a trend but then more research is needed and even terminology around the menstrual cycle when doing that research if you are going to factor in the menstrual cycle as well is which obviously i believe you should i think that that's really complicated so there's just so many additional complexities but as i always say when there's a will there's a way and hopefully times are changing now yeah hopefully and like you said like you know before it wasn't really done on women the research because they were seen as fragile and like oh we we can't harm them um, but I think hopefully the paradigm is shifting and we're seeing like, no, women are strong and resilient and like, you have to be to give birth, right? Like if our, that's what our bodies were evolutionarily built for, then like, we're really tough and strong and resilient. So we can handle certainly being subjects of research. Um, just question from me in terms of the injuries and the differences between men and women that you say that you, you sort of see in your practice and we know the evidence isn't quite there yet. Is that, could that possibly do be due to the way like the different games are played you know do women use certain different you know ball skills in comparison to men um and therefore does that you know mean they are using their hips more in comparison to the males using their hamstrings and things or is that just me clutching at straws <laughs> no it could be um i haven't seen what what i guess i suppose i could do is you know you could look at like the, the world FIFA puts out like a technical report at the end of each World Cup. And so they have the 2019 FIFA Women's World Cup technical report, and then they have the 2018 FIFA Men's World Cup technical report. So you kind of, I guess like one could go and look at those and, and see kind of what the technical differences are. Do men serve long balls more? Or do women serve long balls more? And does that affect it? Um, and of course, there's going to be variation from team to team. Different coaches will have different systems of play that they employ with their team. And so um, that'll be slightly different. Uh, each country, of course, with their, you know, um, social contextual factors and their cultural factors will affect what type of style they play. And so that and where they place emphasis is it on the technical skills? Is it more on the physical skills? And so that'll change. Um, but I suppose there probably are some differences. I would say from a, a cultural perspective of the women's game versus the men's game, since the women's game is so new, um, in comparison to the men's game. I mean, in England, what was it until the seventies, the FA outlawed women's, women's football. So we have a lot of catching up to do, but I feel like women's football has been forced to kind of push through 50 years um, ahead of development, you know, so if it took the men a hundred years to get to this point, you know, we, women have had half that time or even less than half that time. And we're all of a sudden expected to be at near or at the same level as men. 
And so I think that that probably has a bit to do with it as well, where, you know, women are probably, women footballers are probably a little bit more prone to the, like, let's just push through it. And, you know, there's less diving in women's football, I think, for those reasons, like trying to prove ourselves. And I think that that maybe does take a physical toll. I yeah. I also think from because I work in both as as you do Nicole both men's and women's football or soccer and um, you can see just such a difference in support that the athletes get and so if say we were to say well there's more injuries in the women's game well they're not having access to the recovery facilities they don't have the nutritional support and advice around that so there's just so many um disparities i guess between the two it's almost like a a different game but then as you said the women's game is like trying to jump and catch up yeah and that's such a good point is that there's so much more support around male footballers than women footballers and so to try to compare and say like oh see women get way more injuries than men do it's like well there's also not the support there right like up until very recently like this still happens there are women who play in the nwsl the professional league here in the states from like march through october and then they get on a plane and fly halfway around the world to australia and play in the australian professional league for the rest of the year so from October to February or whatever it is. And so we have female athletes, professional athletes playing in two different leagues on opposite sides of the world, like in the same year. That's absurd. Like that is like, and they have to do that because they just don't get the support financially. You know, up until very recently, women had full-time jobs and then trained for their football team on the side. And it's like, imagine the, imagine like the top players from Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, Manchester City, like imagine them having a job on top of being a professional footballer. Yeah. Like, that you would expect to see more injuries because there's more stress on the system and greater demands on them. And so, yeah, we're not comparing even games here. And you sort of just answered this question in terms of the lack of support women get, but in a nutshell, why do you think there are so many ACL injuries in women's football? I do think it's from a couple different things. I I think that mostly not many female uh, footballers or female athletes have been exposed to a good strength and conditioning program from a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so like we we can actually see like in the U.S. for example, when Title IX was passed, so that was when um, colleges had to offer the same male and female um, opportunities in sport. When that was passed, the rate of ACL injuries went up exponentially and so obviously with more women participating in sport there's there was an increase of ACL injuries but again it's the same thing where it's they're not allowed to participate not allowed to participate and then bang all of a sudden they are and there's a big increase in the amount of women participating in sport but they haven't done the prerequisite work to get there right they haven't um, learned fundamental movement patterns because little boys are taught to run around and climb trees and swing on monkey bars, little girls historically are not um, encouraged to do those same things. And so from a very young age, kind of the whole societal um, impression of what little girls should be doing is changing, obviously now, um, and hopefully we'll continue on that trend. But um, yeah, I think that we just don't introduce young female athletes to strength and conditioning from a young enough age 
And now all of a sudden we're asking them to do the same physical demands on a soccer pitch as male players who have been doing some strengthening exercises. And so I think that's where that's the lowest hanging fruit is implementing a good strength and conditioning program that prepares women for the sport demands. Um, and then I think there's from that after that, that, that's like the biggest drop in the bucket. And then after that, then I think all of the individual components do genetics play a role. I think probably there's going to be some factor of genetics that plays a role in injury risk. Um, hormonal fluctuations, of course, as well. Um, yeah. Whether, the, you know, just the dynamic stabilizers versus the passive stabilizers, um, different muscle asymmetries. I think there's going to be different risk factors for each person under that. But I think the biggest thing is the strengthening. For this series, we've joined Patreon. Patreon is a platform which has allowed us to build an online female athlete community. Becoming a patron costs just £3.29 a month and supports our mission of empowering more women to own and understand their bodies and open up important topics which often go under-researched and under-discussed. If you like what we do and you want to support us, please consider becoming a patron. The link to our Patreon page is in the show notes or head to www.patreon.com forward slash female athlete podcast. Another question for you, for you, Nicole, specifically around the menstrual cycle. So I um, sometimes I get quite frustrated when I see headlines about player X got injured and she was on her period and it's another one that gets injured when or her, they rupture an ACL when they're on their period. And then you read deeper into the article and it will say, oh, estrogen levels were high. So she got injured, but estrogen levels are low when you're menstruating. And I feel like there is a lot of kind of um, discussion around this area. Um, and there is increasing research coming out saying, um, you know, there might be certain times where um, estrogen receptor expression is different at certain times in the menstrual cycle, which could increase um, risk of certain soft tissue injuries, maybe due to um, alterations to tissue integrity or changes in ligament laxity. And what's your experience around this? Like, what what would be your sort of um, I guess, overarching opinion at the moment in terms of menstrual cycle and injury risk? Yeah, so there are estrogen receptors on the ACL, right? And it seems, obviously, we still need more research in this, as with most things, but it does seem that there, from the research I read, it does seem that maybe there's an increased risk um, during the follicular phase. Um, so maybe there's some kind of physiological thing that changes risk, or maybe just the cyclical nature of our of the female hormones is maybe what changes risk. And you know, that's something that definitely should be looked into more. My my frustration and my concern is that when we spin it to say that this means women have to be careful and fragile. And that's what I like, you know, in, in some of our talks previously, Georgie, that's what I liked about talking with you about it is that, you know, we can see this as like, not our weakness, but as our strength. Like there may be times that we can push a lot for a lot more, a lot further than what we think we can. Um, and now we can have physiological data to back that up. Um, or we can educate a player and say, hey, and it's, it's similar to like, to pain, right? Like we can say to a player in pain who's experiencing pain, 
Like, I know you're feeling this. Um, maybe there's a lot of contextual things contributing to your pain, uh, lack of sleep, stress. You got in a fight with your roommate last night, whatever it might be. This is a big game, so you're feeling the pressure. Um, but you're not going to do any more damage. And that, just knowing that, like, puts them kind of more at ease and can help the pain experience a little bit more. And I feel like it's similar here. Like, the perception around, because we don't know definitively, a lot of athletes, and because there's a lot of myths out there that I know you all have been trying to bust, um, there's a lot of female athletes out there who say things like, oh, I'm on my period, so I'm really clumsy. Um, I'm, I'm on my period and like everything hurts. So if we can have more research to be able to educate them on it and say like, I know you feel lousy, um, but like, you know, this, we know that you're not at increased risk right now. So it's okay if you push a little bit harder or we can say, you know, I know you're feeling a little lousy or you feel like you don't really have as much balance um, but actually, this is what's going on. And just being able to educate them is really empowering. And that's what I hope the research coming out does, empowers female athletes and doesn't have kind of this patriarchal spin on it where it's like, oh, we need to protect and avoid things. We can't take away the psychological side of it. And it would right now, that's kind of like all we're working with, like not all we're working with, but that's the bulk of it is the psychological side of like, oh no, I'm on my period and I have a game today. Like that's what we want to use the research to try to eliminate is that psychological buildup of, of fear and anxiety. And, and like you said, like oh, last time I tore my ACL, I was on my period and now I have a game tomorrow. And, and like, I start my period tomorrow. What do I do? And like that can certainly play into it. Um, my dad was my coach for a long time when I was a kid. And he used to always say, like, if you play afraid to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. Um, I think he was just trying to make me more aggressive because I'm not really that aggressive, <laughs> but that's something like that's kind of stuck with me. It's like, it, so if an athlete goes in afraid of injury, like that's when they're going to be injured. They're not going to go in for a tackle as hard. And then, um, maybe they're going to move differently because of that fear. And so I think that's important to recognize. I also think like something else I've really seen is that, and again, like you'll have more experience with this, but I feel everyone's so different. So some people may really see an altered ligament laxity. I've, de I've got a, a runner that I've been working with who she tore her hamstring bang on like estrogen peak and everything else I, I felt was like totally in check. Like we'd done so much monitoring of her. Her sleep was great. Her nutrition was great. We'd even been doing like daily blood sampling to really see how she was getting on. And her coach even saw her overstriding. So to me, I'm like, okay, well that, that does make sense, but everyone is different. And I would say some people pre-menstrually where we know there's a bit more inflammation in on sort of day one or day two of the menstrual cycle, like for me, that's more of a risk window for them with potentially other types of injuries. So I always say when I'm asked about, oh, Actually, I, I got a question last week. Oh, is it true that when estrogen levels are high, I'm more likely to tear my ACL? And I was just like, no, it totally depends on who you are, your individual mm -hmm. biomechanics, like so many different things about you. And I, again, believe so strongly in like tracking people's cycles and really understanding what their individual footprint looks like to gain a better understanding of, okay, this is your scenario. This is you. This is where we need to cushion you to optimal performance consistently. I feel like individualizing it is absolutely the way to go. Because there's, there's some soccer players who will tear their ACL who 
are so strong, so powerful, and you wouldn't expect them to tear their ACL, but something happens and they do. Um, then there's some athletes who like, just the way they move, you're just kind of like, at some point or another, they're tearing their ACL. Um, there was a study done maybe like two or three years ago now, maybe even more recently than that, where um, the researchers, and I forget who did this study, but the researchers had a survey basically that went around and they took videos of athletes doing a um, drop vertical jump test. So standing on a box, dropping down and jumping straight back up again. And sports coaches, um, healthcare providers, surgeons, physios, uh, strength coaches were all meant to be looking at this video and then rate on a scale of one to 10 of how likely we thought that person was to tear their ACL based on how they moved. And so what their data found was that we, uh, anyone who did that survey all agreed with each other on, you know, like how at risk we thought the athlete was, but our ability to predict that was no better than flipping a coin. So there are athletes who will tear their ACL because they move like garbage. There are some athletes who are really strong and powerful and will, will tear their ACL because they produce too much force through their quads and that causes an ACL tear. Um, so I think that there's different proportions of risk factors present in each individual and each individual comes with their own risk um, history and, and risk proportions. And so being able to identify like, because this person's really strong, maybe we need to work a little bit more on the control side of things, or because this person isn't quite as strong, we need to really strengthen them so that their dynamic stabilizers kick in, like the hamstrings is basically the dynamic stabilizer of the ACL. Um, so maybe we need to get their dynamic stabilizer stronger so that their um, passive stabilizers, the ligaments, um, don't have to be as at, at risk quite as much maybe this person's hormones are, are the biggest thing that are putting them at risk. And right now, we don't know what that proportion is gonna be person to person. We can do movement screens, we can measure force output and strength, um, but we don't know right now how much of a proportion the hormones come into play and how to individualize that. I feel like ligament laxity gets such a bad rep because that's all that they pin it on in the media. And it, you kind of think to yourself, and that if I was a player, I'd be so worried that my joints were literally so yeah. loose in certain stages of my cycle that I, yeah, like you were saying earlier, I wouldn't want to perform well. I've actually seen some other research conducted by Ellen Casey, Dr. Ellen Casey at HSS in New York, and she talks about differences in neuromuscular firing patterns aligned to the menstrual cycle and I think as as Lucy said everyone talks about ligament laxity but I think the picture is just so much bigger than that and yes as, as you said Nicole like for some people hormonal risk factors are you know really big but for others actually it could be com completely different factors and it could even be that when they're on their period so they could have loads of sleep disruption or their mood is suppressed so then they're just more fatigued so then that can affect injury risk but I, I think the biggest thing is just we need more data. The more we can track good and collect good quality data, the, the better. Yeah, and getting each athlete like just more acquainted with their own bodies, right? Like their body is essentially like their their business, their industry. Like they their career depends on their body. And so the more information we can give them on their bodies, uh, the better, you know, the, the more empowered they can be to help make decisions about their bodies um, and to know like, okay, 
I should back off a little bit right now because we had a midweek game. We have a midweek game next week as well. So, you know, high match congestion. I'm on my period and I know I'm feeling a little bit moody um, and I know that I'm not sleeping as well. So, you know, and just giving them that extra information on themselves. Like I think one of the biggest things that I'm all about is empowering the athlete and especially female athletes because we tend to not do that for women for whatever reason uh we, like I think the the historical perspective has been protect and not empower and so that's kind of my hope with all of this moving forward is that it's always about just empowering the athlete to know more and therefore be able to act in their best interests more yeah, we like the word empower on this podcast. <laughs> we do use it a lot. Um, that's that's all really amazing. And um, what you're seeing sort of firsthand and then bringing the research in is obviously what we like as well. So do, do you regularly have a chat with your with your clients and well, the female athletes that you work with about the menstrual cycle? Is that a go to area that you would definitely talk about? And if so, um, do you think all practitioners should be doing that? It, it does seem nowadays that that is just something that you cannot ignore as a, as a, as a, any practitioner working with any sort of female athlete. Yeah. I think it's a must conversation, like a must have conversation, you know, just to say like, cause every time you see somebody come in, you should ask them, Hey, how are you today? And like, if you're asking about overall wellness, how did you sleep? You know, are you hydrated? Um, what are your stress levels? Like how sore are you? A natural, we should start making it a natural part of the conversation is that another question is that, you know, like, what part of the cycle are you in? Are you, is that making you feel a certain way? Um, like, I feel like that should just be a natural part of wellness, overall health and wellness. And we track that in teams, right? We track health and wellness scores and readiness scores. And why would we not factor something in that whether it's just perceived or not? And Obviously, I think that there is some physiological side of it, but even if it's just a psychological thing that they perceive that there is a danger or a threat or they perceive um, that they're in a bad mood or that they're extra stressed because of it, like that's important for us to consider. So I feel like it needs to be part of that daily conversation. I, I quite often in my experience of working with different athletes see um, or hear anecdotes from the athletes about how, you know, as you said, their lower back's quite sore and it flares up at certain times in the menstrual cycle or their Achilles hurts more at certain times in the menstrual cycle or their hamstring tendon. And it's only through, I guess, tracking we have actually established that. And it, it's so interesting because it almost gives them a peace of mind that, okay, it's this window of time that I... I know that yes okay something's not quite right but it's not like oh my gosh the world's ending something really really hurts but you can kind of rationalize and obviously once you can collect that data you can then look at how you can manage it better but I feel at least getting the conversation going and monitoring it is so important. So um, my advice for athletes would be yeah like track it yourself and don't just track like okay today's first day of my cycle tomorrow's the second day of my cycle, next is the third day, track, like, and how do you feel that day? And then you can see if trends emerge, because if, if you have like, okay, this is, you know, day three of my cycle, and this is how I feel. Um, I also slept six hours last night, um, and, you know, had an extra glass of red wine last night. But then day three of your cycle, the next time around, it's like, oh, this is how I feel. I slept eight hours, fully hydrated, ate super well, no stress. 
but you still feel the same way, well then maybe we can correlate it a little bit more with your hormonal levels and not all of the other things in your life. So I would say tracking it, but also with how you feel and some of the other contextual things going on around your life or in your life, um, I think that that's really helpful, a helpful way to do it. And then, yeah, if you have to, if you feel like you have to change your or modify your training based on that, now you have like data as to like write down what you did for training and how you felt what your response was. Because everyone responds differently to training. Um, So it stands to reason that you're going to respond differently to different phases of your cycle and how you train in each phase of your cycle. Um, So tracking that as well, like if you see patterns emerge, then you can start to intervene. Yeah, I would say definitely how much sleep you got. Um, and then you can do a quick like morning urine test to see like how hydrated you are. I'd be like, oh wow, I'm really dehydrated today. Like take note of that. And then as far as diet or like nutrition is concerned, I would write down anything that's out of your normal. So like um, you don't have to write down everything you ate every single day. Like that can be a little OCD. But if you write like, oh, last night I had a, like a tub of ice cream. Like that's not my normal, but like I had it last night. So if I have a stomach ache tomorrow, I can, you know, kind of correlate it with the huge pint of ice cream that I just had. Um, or you can say like, oh, I had a few drinks with my friends last night. I don't normally do that. Or I only do that sparingly. And so writing anything that's out of the, out of the ordinary that you think like might contribute to feeling a little different than normal the next day. And then, yeah, like I'm, I like something that I I would take note of is overall energy level, overall soreness level, um, and overall stress and mood. And for me, I like, I would always write down like, like I have, um, breast swelling and tenderness today, or I don't because that's something that, or I have low back pain today and I don't, because those are things that I find come up at certain phases of my cycle. So I take note of them. And as a runner or an athlete of an individual sport, I can imagine, you know, menstrual tracking, um, really easy thing to do um, by yourself. What's your opinion within team sports? You know, how do you think the culture of a team should be? I'm, I'm guessing that it's it would be good to have all teams have an open and honest environment with their coach, with their teammates, backroom staff to just keep the conversation flowing about menstrual cycle symptoms um, and how that might impact on performance. Going back to like my high school days, like I told you, like I, you know, my uh, cycle was pretty abnormal. Um, but there would always like the one I would get one week where my breasts would be swollen and super tender. So like trying to run and sprint and play soccer during that week was like brutal. So like having a strategy of like doubling up on sports bras or like, but then having a conversation with my teammates about it and like kind of like just normalizing that conversation. And I feel like, I feel like athletes, if, if given the appropriate environment um, and the right culture, and I think that that comes from coaching staff um, and performance and medical staff, given the appropriate um, environment and culture, the athletes can have those conversations amongst themselves as well and start to normalize that conversation. And that's where my high school days come in is that we'd be warming up and I'd be like, Oh, like, my boobs are really swollen and tender right now. And then somebody else would say like, oh my gosh, me too. Or somebody's like, yeah, my back hurts. And like, you know, we would, or somebody would say like, oh, that was me last week. And so the conversation becomes a normal, just kind of, you know, team banter and, and 
not something that we're trying to hide or that we're ashamed of or embarrassed about, but it takes an appropriate culture and environment for those conversations to be able to occur. So I think that that's a big um, thing that coaches, that the coaching staff and performance medical staff should be aware of is allowing those conversations to naturally occur in a way that's non-threatening. Yeah, amazing, Nicole. Like that's exactly why you feel like it's just so important. And as you say, people talk about injury risk in the menstrual cycle. People talking talk about changing training in the menstrual cycle, but it is all so individual. And I think to your point, one hundred percent in terms of really gaining a better understanding and empowering women to like harness this. I totally agree. It's all on an individual basis and tracking yourself or uh, from a coach's perspective tracking your athletes to really gain an understanding of that I think is the next level of performance and um, increasing resilience as much as anything I've really enjoyed talking to you this afternoon and um, hopefully all of the athletes coaches other practitioners out there will have learned as much as we have today so thank you so much for coming on and very much appreciated yeah thank you so much for having me I enjoyed it I think that was a really fantastic chat with Nicole. She was very easy to understand. She put things quite clearly and spoke very coherently about this area. Um, I think it's important that we unravel a little bit about what Nicole was saying, because there was quite a lot to digest there. So, so Georgie and Jess, how did you find the interview? I thought it was really interesting. So um, it was quite nice how she was able to know a lot of the literature, which I think from from a person who's gone to physios quite a lot I think that's really nice to see that they are actually up to date with these things and trying to implement in into practice but then also she's taking her applied knowledge like what she's seeing on the ground on a day-to-day basis and also using that as sort of an instinct to apply to her practice but we need that more research I think was the uh, underlying statement that she said quite often but I know, Georgia, you see things on a day-to-day basis as well with injuries and menstrual cycles. Like, what was your take on it? Yeah, um, I 100% agree that she has a really good mix of research and practice. So it's almost like the research informs her application, but the application also informs her her research, which is really cool. And that's, I believe, the way it should be. Um, I, I really do agree that it's so multifactorial and there's so many different things that need to be um monitored and identified and tracked to really understand whether there is an association but for some people where estrogen levels are high their injury risk um with certain injuries might be increased whereas for other people it might be a different phase of the menstrual cycle so it's so unique and so individual and i think monitoring tracking is just so important to really understand that individual athlete's footprint to then identify okay if there is a risk where is the risk what is that and most importantly what can be done to mitigate it And one other thing I just wanted to touch on lastly was, um, Jess, you you have a lot of knowledge in this area and you've suffered bone injuries yourself. Were you surprised when Nicole said that female athletes historically suffer more bone injuries or from what she's seen from her practice that that's the case anyway? No, not at all. So um, I think predominantly females are associated with bone injuries when they have irregularities or absences of cycles. you know, it might be for an interim period when they're, they're training really hard and it comes back or um, they've had a, a momentary dip in energy availability. So their cycle's temporarily lost. 
therefore their estrogen is lost a bit similar to like the menopause um, and therefore they're not getting that sort of regular um, bone formation happening because they don't have the estrogen to make that happen. Um, so it's not surprising because of the estrogen reliability that females have that you see more bony stress injuries in female athletes. That said, you know, you could get someone who has a regular cycle. Um, but I think the peaks and troughs that we experience throughout the menstrual cycle with estrogen put us generally at more risk for bone stress injuries as well on top of that. Um, so you've got like two factors really sort of the fluctuations throughout every month so that leaves you vulnerable when when times at estrogen are low like just after around ovulation and things during your period um, and then also you've got the factor that if some people like lose estrogen um, through irregularity of cycles but then additionally you've also got people on combined or contraceptive pills where not all of them, but some of them have a synthetic type of estrogen rather than your natural estrogen. So that dampens your natural estrogen and therefore you're not getting as much basically. Um, so it's harder for the, you're not getting that great regulation um, of bone formation that you normally would do in a natural menstrual cycle. And I think there's actually some research emerging and more clearly needs to be done as with everything but to really understand um the impact of the combined pill on risk of um, bone injury and actually there's a recent research study that compared using the combined pill versus using the vaginal ring um in terms of what they both did for bone health and actually there was a real negative impact on i think one of the growth growth factor hormones when using the combined pill, whereas the vaginal ring actually had a positive impact on bone health. Um, I really, really, really think this is such an important kind of area to understand because the number of times, Jess, I'm sure you've heard of this as well, that athletes are put on the pill to protect their bone health. Um, that really stresses me out. And I know, Jess, I think you might have personal experience of this, but I, I think, it's hard because research really is in its infancy, but still I think it's so important to appreciate that that shouldn't really be the gold standard approach. Um, I would also just add protein intake. We know typically women aren't so good at taking on protein and protein is obviously really important for bone health. So um, being really mindful of protein consumption um, and of course calcium vitamin D too. Guys, and we'll use that question about bone health and bone injuries as our question for question time this week. Well, that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank Limitless Bra for their support of this episode. Head to limitlessbra.com for more information. We'd also like to thank a new patron this week, Kerry Morris. Your support is really appreciated. Our title sponsor for this series is Pretty Athletic. Head to www.prettyathletic.com to view the amazing range of products available and use discount code FEMALEATHLETEPOD for 20% off.